My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, before we get into today's topic, which is politics, which is why I'm sure you're all here, bring it on. <laughs> I won't say who, but somebody said to me at the back, say something controversial, then we'll have more seats. I won't say who that was. <laughs> Lizanne, come on. Seriously? Before we get into that, though, um, this. Remember this image from a couple weeks back? Dramatic pause. There we go. Remember this? Do you guys remember this? Remember this whole concept? We were talking about um, sharing our faith with others, and we ended with this idea of falling in love with casting, that a true fisherman doesn't get so focused on outcome, on results, but just loves the act of, of the anticipation of what might happen when the line goes in. And I just wanted to share with you that I sometimes have the privilege of sort of having a sense of how God is moving that sometimes um, I know all of us don't get access to. And I've just heard countless stories of people taking a bold step to, um, to do this, to say to a longtime friend, hey, we've never talked about spiritual things together. And would it be weird if, if I would just love to know what you believe? You know I go to church every week, and it's a topic we, and people have engaged that. Or people who have told me that maybe for the first time they went into work on Monday and someone asked, what'd you do this weekend? And they said, I went to church, um, and I found it meaningful, and, and it started great conversations, and sometimes um, some of the stories are like, yeah, I said that, and then the person was like, I go to church too, and then it was like, what? Um, <laughs> right? And so th just the idea of making our faith public, I think, is, is taking hold in this community in a way that we knew was going to be, you know, first little seedlings here and there. I just want to encourage you with that and make you, um, embolden you and make you feel not alone if those are steps that you've already taken or that you're, you're thinking about taking. I just couldn't encourage you more. Hey, join in and let's see what God does um, as we move towards this as a community. With that, we'll jump back into our series. We're calling this Faithful to the Core. We've called this Faithful to the Core for many years now. We always start our calendar year by reminding ourselves of the core of who we are, why we do what we do. And I'll just show you this quote again. I hope many of you roll your eyes. It says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? We live in a moment that is very suspicious of the idea that there's any story that can hold together uh, human history, human culture, that uh, instead sort of the prevailing story is that we are the sum total of time plus energy plus chance, boom, and now we're here and we just have to figure it out on our own. We as Christians uh, believe that no, there is a story that God has been writing literally from the foundation of the world that our little stories can be caught up in and that can make sense of our everyday lives, of our everyday challenges, of even the worst moments of life, and can give us a sense of gratitude for the best moments of our life. So this is a, a fairly well-known philosopher of the last century who said this now years and years ago, but I find this really compelling that a lot of us really struggle with, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with my life? What am I supposed to do in any given situation? What, what's a grid by which to make decisions in my life? And what we've said is, that the Christian faith, that, that 
that the gospel um, that I'll talk about in just one second gives us that grid. And so this is the image that we've been working with through this series is, so you, you see our icons, the one all the way over there is now straight, um, thanks to Rachel Palmer, it was bothering some of you, I know. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all leveled out. Um, but these icons are our five core identities. These are like values, maybe you've heard them called in other settings. This, this is how we want to do things around here. This is what we want to be known as. This is the kind of culture that we want to set here. And the first one over here is gospel-centered. So I won't re-preach all of these weeks, but basically gospel-centered, that's the story. The good news. That good news suggests something has happened. And we believe something has happened, that God has intervened in human history through Jesus Christ's Son, come and died for humanity's sin. And now there's hope in the world and a hope that has a sure end because we also know the final chapter. Now we live in between the resurrection, the beginning, the dawning of that hope and the full realization of that hope when he comes again. And so everything that we do, especially as God's people, there's a lot that we can do and there's a lot that life can be about. But we, as a church, want to be about certain things that we believe flow from that good news, from that story. And what we've been talking about um, the last few weeks is this idea of being thoughtfully engaged with the world. That there is this unique call that we have as Christians to be in the world in a certain way. Here's how we've been tracking this, is we've been tracking it through the story. And so today we're going to talk, um, talk about what it means to thoughtfully engage with with politics, and here I'm talking very specifically about 21st century American democratic partisan politics, okay? Um, I can't talk about every place and every time. So we're, we're going to try and narrow in on what does it mean to be distinctly Christian in our place and time when it comes to this aspect of human culture. Hi, guys. Hi. What's up? <laughs> guys, the Mazurks had their baby, and is that not just the sweetest little thing you've ever seen? Um, and, and telling the story through the lens of politics is actually kind of, this is why this is a hard topic. I'll just say that. So here's how the whole story begins. So in Genesis 1, God creates the world and, has, and makes humanity in his image, which by now hopefully you're getting used to the fact that what that means is that we were to rule and represent God in the world, to be and to do who God would be and what God would do if he were physically present in the world. That's what it means at least a huge part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so that's how God planned to rule the world, through us, through human agency. Um, as his, uh, the fancy word for this in, in Old Testament, you know, theological language is we were to be vice regents, right? That word regency, rulership, we were to be vice regents. That's how God intended to rule the world. Now that story and that plan and that strategy goes bad really quick, not because of God, because of us, we rebel against that. And we say, well, we know you created it, but we feel like we should rule the world. And our decision that we should rule the world, not as representatives of God, not under God, not as vice regents, but as the whole thing, has consequences that we're still dealing with to this day. What God does with that situation is First, he pursues one man, one family, and one nation, namely the nation of Israel. Next slide. And Israel is very specifically run through a political system 
that is, you can call by various names, theonomy or whatever. It has God as their rightful king. And then God gives them his law and says, even though now the world isn't being run and ruled in the way that I intended, this singular people are going to be run and ruled the way that I intended. They will submit to me, they will be my people, and they will acknowledge me as their rightful king. Now, I'm not going to go into all the story, but even that goes horribly wrong because the people say, yeah, but we really want a king like the rest of the world. We really want someone who can be strong, who can represent us, who can call us out and call others out and lead us out in battle. And God says, yeah, that, that's, that's my job. And they say, no, we like want a person, though. We, we want someone that actually fits our categories. And so God gives them kings, and it goes really bad. <laughs> like, by and large, the kings in the Old Testament are, are not at all what God would see as bearing the image properly. And so what we ultimately long for is a righteous king to rule, the way that God always intended, to be fully submitted to God and yet to represent God perfectly, to be and to do who God would be if he were physically present in the world. Well, guess what? This is where, oh, the ultimate fail. Well... At least it's not the core identity we're talking about, because I would feel some sort of <laughs> prophetic action or something. We'll deal with that later. Okay. Gosh, when I'm talking about Jesus, no less. Okay, so Jesus bursts on the scene, and who is Jesus? Jesus is the rightful son of God. He is perfectly who God would be and does what God would do if he were physically present in the world. We are told he is the exact imprint of the Father. And in fact, he comes as king, right? He is killed... With the sign over his head, king of the what? King of the Jews, right? Like that's a reference to, yes, he is the one who is going to rightfully reign and rule. And yet, even that sign is too small for what Jesus came to do. Jesus says, no, I'm actually the rightful king over the entire world. Because God's intention, even for Israel itself, was that through Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus is that blessing to the world. Where it gets complicated, though, is that Jesus doesn't set up a government. He doesn't set up a nation. In fact, what he tells his disciples, his final commission that we looked at two weeks ago, is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And so his strategy is not primarily one of setting up a particular political system and then saying, if you want in, you have to submit yourself to this political system. Instead, he says, no, my kingdom will advance largely through those who are within the kingdoms of this world, but owe their allegiance first and foremost to me. And you go, oh, that sounds really complicated. And it is. It is. Jesus says things like this, and I think some of the, I don't know that it's tension, but some of why this has been so difficult for Christians to navigate over the years comes through um, passages like these. So this is a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous speech, and he says, uh, he gives two images here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the salt 
of the earth, right? This image is one of scattering, right? You, you spread salt over things. Now, he's not primarily talking about salt that seasons. He's talking about old school, back in the day, ancient salt, which would preserve things that tended toward uh, decay, namely meats, mostly. And so the idea here is that we are sent into a world that is prone toward decay, and we become an anti-decaying agent in the world. That's the idea. Which, is, which in, in that, you hear the sense of, of scattering, that this is not within one group of people, one nation. This is something that we're to go and spread throughout the world and be an anti-decaying agent in the various kingdoms of this world, owing our allegiance to another kingdom. He then says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a a basket, oh no, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By the way, both of these, I think, are not primarily about our individual, as followers of Jesus, our individual witness or influence in the world. These are, these are corporate images of what it means to be together in the world as God's people. And so here he says that my people and the way that they are together are to be like a light to the world. And if you think of light, again, we've talked through these passages before, but if you think of what light does... Light, one, illuminates darkness and gives a way forward. So it's like the way that we are together is to show the world, oh, there's another way of being together. There's another way of relating in community together. And man, this feels like something that we would long for. This feels different, right? That's the kind of witness our corporate life together is meant to have. And he's saying, but it has to be public. Do you hear that? He's saying it can't be tucked away on its own. This is not a, Pastor Minoj talked about this last week. This is not an isolationist strategy for the people of God. He says, go up on it, make yourselves public, make yourself seen. Have, have open doors, so to speak, so that others can come in and actually experience the manner of life that you have together. And in that way, you'll be like a city set on a hill, right? The, the image here is in the darkness of travel at that time. You'd see a city up there and go, oh, that's a place potentially of provision. That's a place of safety. I want to be up there. By the way, notice who he's calling a city set on a hill. Who is he calling that to? Is that a particular country? Is that a particular nation? No, it's, it's God's people, full stop. This is an us thing, right? This is some of where we can get categories confused, right? And say, no, this is about America, right? Like this is part of the founding of our nation. Is we are going to be a city set on a hill. It's like Jesus never said that, that that was his strategy. It was God's people within the kingdoms of this world. There wouldn't be a singular political system, nation that would represent and somehow pull all of this off. This is unique. And yet, okay, all that sounds great. And yet we have passages like this. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing in a letter to a bunch of Christians who are in Rome in the first century. Okay? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is Rome. This is like an, an objectively oppressive empire. And Paul tells them, when it comes to your political life together, 
There is a submission that is good and godly. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, so governments are set up by God. With a, and what you're going to hear is with a different mandate than how God set up his own people, the church. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For he, this is almost certainly re, uh, referring to the Roman emperor, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> right? Um, he's talking about worse rulers than we've ever had in this country, first of all. But he is... Paul is talking about, ideally, this is what government is meant to do. And even in less than ideal circumstances of them not fully fulfilling this, there is still a sense in which it is good and godly and right in God's eyes for his people to be under these governing authorities and to allow the governing authorities to play the role that they play so that we can play the role that we play. I would say, if you're wondering, like, well, what's the difference? I would say the crucial difference, not I, you don't care what I have to say, smarter people than me, would say that the crucial difference between the role of the church and the role of government is right here in this passage. It's the way in which power is used and wielded. He says that the government wields the sword to put down bad conduct. In other words... The government can use means that are outside of the church's mandate to bring order in the world. The church is to be a place characterized, this is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount in some ways, the church, we, our conduct, the way that we are together is to be a place characterized by, if you want to call it, non-coercive power. We do not raise the fist as God's people, in order to get our way. God says, the government, though, is mandated to. In other words, the, the government, can you, I'll, I'll say this as radically as I can. In some ways, the government is mandated to use sinful means that we are not mandated to use as his people. And God says, let them do that. To an extent. <laughs> to an extent, Right? Because there's also this salt and light part of what we're to do. Because we are not passive in that submission. It is simply articulating that there's a difference between how these two things function. Um, I am now feeling the need to say, I will not answer every question. I don't have an answer to every question about all this. I'm trying to do my best to lay out what we have biblically um, before I go into some of how we're going to live this out. Okay. So here's how this lands in, in our place and time, is um, <laughs> um, with a donkey and an elephant, right? Uh, in, in a helpful book, there's a guy named Michael Ware, who just published a book called The Spirit of Our Politics, um, that I would recommend. Interesting guy, evangelical, um, who worked in the Obama White House and now runs a 
um, basically a Christian in politics, public policy uh, think tank. And so in this book, he starts the book by saying, we, um, he doesn't like the whole idea of like, we live in a particularly divisive political moment. It's like, know your history. Like, <laughs> political divisiveness is kind of our thing here in the old United, quote unquote, States of America, right? Um, but there are certain contours of the divisiveness that, that are good to understand even if they're not unique. And what makes our political moment so, and why you laugh every time that I said that we we're going to be talking about this, is, is, uh, is these things. That there's an aversion to the other side in our political discourse that, that does feel um, particularly fraught. There's a, not only do I disagree with the other side, but I'm disgusted by the other side. By the thought that someone could vote for, by the thought that someone could be a, right? Like fill in the blank. That aversion is, is something that, that feels, if not unique, that just feels like, oof, that is heightened right now. There's also this othering. There's a, there's a wide gap between the sides in that political discourse. There's a, there's a they thing about our political moment. Well, they think, they're the problem. Well, if they wouldn't, right? As opposed to a discourse that says, well, yeah, you know, I agree a little bit over here, I agree a little bit over there. There's this identification with the wholesale adoption of, of a partisan side that, again, is, is worth noting, that, that does feel like something that needs to be named and dealt with. And then, all of that is wrapped up in this moralizing thing. That there's good and evil in all of this. That it is, that it is not only more reasonable or, or better to vote in this way, it is, it is either righteous or unrighteous. And I'm not just talking about within Christian discourse of this, I'm talking about within the discourse in our country in general. That they are wicked and evil. Not just wrong, not just mistaken, not just not what I believe, but that they are wicked and evil. That's what we're living in, right? Bring on the election. Um, it also feels like, and I think, I read a lot about all this this week. My, um, it's not a fun thing to read about, by the way. Get me back to the Gospel of John, right? Um, but one thing that I also feel like is worth noting is... And I think this has more to do with social media, honestly, than necessarily anything about our political moment. Because if you, if you dumped social media into just about any era of, of American history, yo. Um, right? Like, wow. So I think that this is actually driven more by social media than by anything, all of this. But there's also, because of the amount of political stuff that, that is consumed, right? Like the average American and, and what we're consuming of the political round, the 24-hour news cycle, cable news, and all of that stuff, is that politics has also become this arena that stokes anger, fear. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen if they get in, if this policy doesn't work, right? The anger and fear that's wrapped up in that is, again, something that we as Christians who are trying to live a certain way, we just need to name that. And then there's also this certainty thing. <clears throat> there's this confidence that that my side understands it all, full stop. 
that we see, I mean, go down the list, go to number 17 issue, and I can guarantee you my side is right on it. Right? This sort of certainty, this lack of nuance, this lack of, well, maybe a little bit of this, maybe a little bit of that. I think that these things are unique about our American democratic 21st century partisan moment. All right, so what do we do with all this? Let me talk through some principles for thoughtfully engaged politics. Or I would probably prefer sort of distinctly Christian, thoughtfully engaged politics. First, and by the way, if these sound vaguely familiar, these are basically ripped from our social discipleship uh, stuff, one-on-one uh, -on -one stuff. Um, some of you will do that in just a couple weeks. Um, but if this sounds familiar to many of you who have already been through your one-on-ones, I'm picking this up from that. Okay, number one, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, not a political system or party. Go ahead and say amen. Yeah, yeah good. There you go. You can respond, right? Like, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. This means when the kingdoms of this world call us to something that would put us at odds with our true and rightful king, this is when we resist, right? Um, I'm, I'm reading this, this giant biography of Martin Luther King Jr. That, that came out last year, right? And this is, this is how King would articulate This is how the Civil Rights Movement would articulate is that there's such a thing as just and unjust laws. And how do you know the difference between a just and unjust law? Well, this is where it's very important to understand the Civil Rights Movement came from a distinctly Christian worldview. They would say, well, we search the scriptures, we search God's truth, and where we feel that we are called to something that makes us contrary to our allegiance to Jesus, we feel that we non-violently, non-coercively exert what we can in order to resist that, right? When push comes to shove, I don't even think when push comes to shove, when nudge comes to whisper or something, right? Like, Jesus wins, and who we are cannot be changed. How we conduct ourselves, how we understand ourselves um, to, to need to behave in any given situation is determined first and foremost, and dare I say sort of only, by our allegiance to Jesus. Any other type of allegiance is secondary. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. He says, oh, my highlights aren't there. Guys, these were highlighted. I know that some of you really love the highlights. Um, you can go ahead and highlight in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, right? We are dual citizens, and our primary citizenship is with Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, ain't no Savior coming from an earthly kingdom. We're awaiting our Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know what he's saying? He's saying we're waiting for a better salvation. Find me a savior that can change this lowly body into a heavenly body. I'll follow him. Until that day, Jesus is my savior. Thank you very much. John 17, these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus praying for his followers. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Here's the tension. Well, if we're not of this world, let's just go into our holy huddle. Let's just hide out, wait this thing out, and wait until Jesus comes back. 
He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. A lot of conversations about truth in our cultural moment. Jesus is saying, oh God, may my people's truth always be my truth. Not the truth of a political party, not the truth of any pundit, not the truth of even hilarious news, you know, uh, late night news commentators. Sanctify them in my truth. My truth wins out. All right, number two. Political involvement is, I almost want to say unfortunately, is, unfortunately, a discipleship issue and necessity. It is... Um, in that book, I like this line that Michael Ware. Oh, I have on here. By the way, happy Lunar New Year to those who observe. Kung Ho Fat Choi and Xin Yin Kwai Le. Thank you. Okay. Um, Michael Ware says this. Um, <laughs> sorry, sweetie. My wife is mortified right now. Perhaps if we treated political life as a limited but vital area of responsibility for citizens that derives its importance not from how it makes us feel, but from the dignity of the people who are affected by political decisions, perhaps then we'd see more people who are willing not just to vote, but also to participate in politics in an other-centered way. Isn't that helpful? I think a lot of us Christians want to say, yeah, it's such a mess, I'm going to disengage. But we are disengaging from an area of life that impacts others. And things that impact others, I'm sorry, Christian, but we just don't get out of completely not caring about. That kind of heartless disengagement, which probably doesn't feel heartless, it probably feels thoughtful, it probably feels like, well, yeah, I just want, don't want to give into the nonsense. But that is an option to declare our okayness with the status quo. And so you get this sense in the New Testament that no, where we're able, we are to engage with these things. Now, how we engage makes all the difference, but to simply disengage, I don't think is what our shepherd king would actually call us to do. He said salt and light. And so we got to figure out what, what that means. Also, the, again, the apostle Paul writes this to his young protege, Timothy. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that, they, that, we, sorry, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, gave himself as a ransom for all, which is testimony given at the proper time. This is such an interesting text. I could do entire sermons on each of these, but here's what he's saying. He said, pray for your rulers. By the way, almost certainly who is in power when Paul writes this to Timothy is Emperor Nero. Nero was the worst, like the worst persecuting Christian psychopath. And Paul says, you got to pray for him. Now, for us, this might sound like, oh, I'm going to pray for the president or whatever, like no big deal. For them, though, 
it's Paul saying you've got to hold out hope that this will not always be the situations that, that you find yourself in. And what Paul is saying here, it's so interesting. He goes from pray for the king so that you can live a godly life because God wants everyone to be saved. And it's like, blah, blah, blah. what? Like, I don't initially follow the logic of like, pray for the kings, God wants everyone saved. What he's saying is that the church has a better chance of functioning as it is meant within peaceful situations. And so don't not hope for that. Right? It can become this, this convenient thing to say, the church always thrives when it's oppressed and marginalized. That's true, but if you talk to the people who are actually in that situation, and you say, I'm not going to pray that your government would actually choose peace, they would go, no, please pray. Like This would be a lot easier if we weren't being dragged out every Sunday, if we weren't being chased, if our children weren't being arrested. Right? Like Paul is saying, yes, there is a manner of, of life that that God would, is unapologetic, like allows you to be unapologetic about desiring in which the church will thrive. John Stott, a great biblical commentator, says it this way. He says, this isn't up there. It says, uh, the ultimate object of our prayers for national leaders then is that in the context of the peace they preserve, religion and morality can flourish and evangelism can go forward without interruption. So that within such a stable society, the church may be free to worship God, obey his laws, and spread his gospel. Thus, church and state have reciprocal duties. The church to pray for the state and be its conscience. The state to protect the church so that it may be free to perform its duties. Each should acknowledge that the other also has a divine origin and purpose. Each should help the other to fulfill its God-given role. That's, that's, that's the gist of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here when he tells them to pray. Which also means, aside from prayer, we can also advocate for and vote for policies that would allow people to live a peaceful and quiet life. That would allow the church to thrive and the gospel to go forth. Like that, that's an okay way <laughs> to, to think about our political engagement. All right, let's keep going. Number three, our political identity is as exiles and sojourners. Our political identity is as exiles and sojourners. Let me read you uh, Hebrews 11. It's, it talks about all of these saints from the Old Testament, and then it summarizes it this way. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. James, uh, brother of Jesus, opens his letter in the New Testament by talking about he is writing to those who have been dispersed. He is writing to exiles. Peter starts his letter to the early church by saying to the exile, to you elect exiles who are dispersed in the world. This is who we are. We don't fit in any political system because we're never intended to. We are always exiled. We are always marginalized. If there is one type of political system that I think Jesus would most warn us against, it's let's get the power. Come on, Christians, let's get the power and then we can make this nation truly Christian because you know what that ends up being? It ends up making those two spheres overlap and it says Christians can exert 
the kinds of means that the state does. Imagine if we could. Imagine if we could grab the, 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 you know, the steering wheel of the nation. Imagine if we could grab the, the, the weapons of, imagine what we could do. <laughs> it's like, yeah, imagine what we could do, right? The gospel will not thrive under that. We are exiles. We are strangers. We are sojourners. This, is, this also comes from when God's people are literally taken into exile in the Old Testament. It's a huge part of the story in the Old Testament. They're sent uh, into Babylon, into this massively oppressive empire. And to their utter shock, you might be aware of this, they have a prophet who arises named Jeremiah who writes to them. And he says, contrary to what you might think, your role within this empire is actually to pray for them and to actually seek their welfare. And to be, yes, different and distinct as my people in this place. But you're not to grab after power. You're not to rebel against the situation in which you find yourself in some way that says, until we're in power, we can't be who God wants us to be. He says, no, there's a way to be in every single empire. There's a way to be in every single kingdom. There's a way to be in every single political party. And it will be distinct and different but I know that this is how I'm sending you. When he says, I am sending them into the world as you sent me. When Jesus says that, I am sending them into the world. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am sending them as the Father sent me in this sense. I'm sending them with a mandate to be distinct in the world, but I am also sending them knowing that the world will resist the way that they are. And so he knows that we will be a marginalized, sometimes hated group of people. And to spend our whole life just finding ways to not be hated, to not be marginalized. Again, this is where there's some tension in these, in these two principles. But Jesus says, no, be busy about my, my way of being in the world. Last one. Our political posture is engaged prophetic distance. I love this one. I'm borrowing this from actually a pastor friend of mine. Engaged prophetic distance. This is what we see throughout the scriptures. Is that we don't see God's people retreating. We don't see them cocooning. We don't see them isolating. They are within the kingdoms of the world. But they are prophetic within those kingdoms. They will speak against where unrighteousness is. They are unashamed to name where the kingdoms of this world and God's kingdom are at odds. And so there's a prophetic witness that they bear both in word but also in how they live together. But it's distant. In fact, in the Old Testament, a prophet was explicitly not to be a member of the king's governing authorities. They were to have a kind of uh, objectivity to them where their own power, where their own stake in the empire was not caught up in whether or not they were going to call out the king for the ways in which the king was not exercising godly authority. The prophet was to be separate in a way. I think that that's a good word for us as the church. We're to be prophetic. And we're to be prophetic in some sense from a distance, right? As the church. Now, this doesn't mean that individual Christians can't be engaged in politics and all. That's what I can't answer today. I'm saying in general, corporately, as God's people, we have a different mandate. And it's a mandate to be prophetic. It's not to be necessarily in the king's immediate governing council. It's to be prophetic by the way that we live and by the words that we say. 
was thinking about this this week. Put that next slide up. Next one. Yeah, there we go. Like my graphic? It's a lamb. I said, if anyone wants to take this, I'm pretty sure it's public domain. You want to make t-shirts? Go, just go nuts with it. I was thinking, man, that aversion, that disgust for others, that anger that characterizes our political moment, right? I think in the New Testament it's called to say, no, be, be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to, quick to listen, right? This is why we believe in life in multi-ethnic community. It's not just multi-ethnic, it's multi-everything, right? I've been asked before, how do, you, how, how do you think this church voted in the last election? And I genuinely, I genuinely, my aunt is like, I kind of would be curious to know too. That's my genuine answer is I'm like, I would love to know just out of curiosity. I'm like, I have no idea. And I think that's great. I think that's great, right? But we want more than just political diversity. We want diversity of all kinds. And then we want a manner of life together where we're actually able to listen to each other. Where when we find out that someone has a different stance on any political issue or political candidate or any election, right? We can't go, ugh, them. Because that person is someone that we sit with every week in discipleship course and have poured our hearts out and we know their struggles and we've wept with them and we've prayed with them, right? Because this is where we can be different. <laughs> this is where we can do this differently. We don't have to give in to that nonsense. That othering, that fear of the other, right? Like Jesus explicitly calls us to love our enemies. It's the most radical thing he ever said. Love your enemies, do you know why he gets to say that? Because he loved his enemies, us, right, to the uttermost. He did not call us to something that he himself did not Im literally embody to the depths. You were an enemy of God. You want to know the gospel? The gospel is you were not just someone who needed a moral upgrade. You are not just someone who needed a little spiritual clarification in your life. You were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. We rebel just like our first parents. And Jesus comes and he says, love your enemies. And we go, sure. And then he does it. And then he says, this is what can actually change the human heart and makes, makes enemies friends. This is what changes the human heart and makes that initial disgust, that initial othering like a, man, I was there once. I was there. I know what that's like, right? That's why we seek justice and mercy and have to actually get proximate to the vase of this world to the people who feel other, that moralizing that certainty. Can this not be true of the church anymore? At least ours, our little church here in Central Jersey. I know the church, capital C, is very confident about a lot of things, and we got a lot of people speaking for us. Who I don't know about you, but I don't love that they speak for us because they speak with a certainty that doesn't sound like the humility that Jesus called us to, right? Like, what does he say? The Apostle Paul says, look to Jesus, have this mindset, have this posture among yourselves, which is yours because you're in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, this is the natural outflow of your commitment to the gospel is to say, I, I do not have a kind of certainty. I have a certain savior, but that's external to me. What I have is a, is a humble posture in the world that says he knows, but I don't always know. And therefore, this idea that we can say 1 through 27 politically, this is, right, none of us, at least as far as I know, I'm looking around, maybe there's a couple people in, in political policy stuff. 
but very few of us are remote experts. So let's not do this nonsense. Let's listen to the other side and say, they might have something to say on one of these 27 things. I'm going to give you the last word to Tom Skinner. Tom Skinner was a pastor activist um, in the last century. Uh, he famously gave a talk at Urbana, which is a, a national conference for InterVarsity. Shout out InterVarsity. Who are the InterVarsity people there? I know we got some. There you go. Yeah. Um, were any of you there? No. A little, little, little too, too long ago. 1970. Tom Skinner is an African-American man. He gets up in front of a crowd of thousands and thousands. And, he, and just the name of his talk itself was Racism and World Evangelism. Now this is... This is 1970, y'all. This is like, we are, we are just cresting out of the civil rights movement. Um, and he gets up in front of a largely white audience, and he gives a talk about the ways in which the racial uh, history of our nation is one of the things that can undo Christian witness. Guys, this is not an easy talk to give, right? Like, this is still the kind of talk that will get you chased away. And he knows going in, that um, some will claim that what he says is contrary to the gospel. Some will claim that what he says is divisive. Guys, this Black History Month, if there is one thing that I would get you to, to do to observe Black History Month, let's go listen to this talk. It's readily available on YouTube. Um, and he gets up and he just lays out. Here's, here's the history of our nation. In, um, and he has no ax to grind. He's not trying to call anyone out. He's not trying to guilt Anyone on this, he just says, look, this is what it is, and the church is complicit in it. Right? And now, 50 years later, especially post-2020, we have a, I think that the church, the evangelical church, the multi-ethnic, even the majority white church, I think is starting to say, okay, there, there's a history to be told here. There's a complicity to be told here. Um, and we talk about that in our discipleship courses and things so that we can understand that and process that together. But he gets up and lays this out. And he knows that some people are going to call it overly political, and he knows that some people are going to say, oh, you're just, at that time, liberation theology was, was ascendant, which was um, a whole different school of thought and, and a conversation for another time. You'll, you'll hear some of that come out here. And so he ends his talk, though, by actually addressing those who he knows agrees with him. And um, the whole thing is so prophetic. The whole thing is just a, a shining moment of what it looks like to be salt and light in this world, to be courageously salt and light. And he knows that one of the objections will be, yeah, but, but what about salvation and all these things? And I'm just going to give him the last words. It's a little bit long. Basically, what he says is, look, at the end of the day, our allegiance is to Jesus, and his kingdom is the one that's advancing. So any political means that we use to do this, yes, are fleeting. What I'm talking about is allegiance to, to Jesus ultimately. And yes, that's the priority, and let me tell you why. He says, but how do you stop Jesus? They took and nailed him to a cross. But they did not realize that in nailing Jesus to the cross, they were putting up on that cross the sinful nature of all humanity. I was told that as Christ was nailed to the cross, it was more than just a political radical dying. He was God's answer to the human dilemma. On that cross, Christ was bearing in his own body my sin, and he was proclaiming my liberation on that cross. And on that cross, he shed his blood to cleanse me of all my sin, to set me free. They took and buried him, rolled a stone over his grave, wiped their hands and said, that is one radical who will never disturb us again. We've gotten rid of him. We'll never hear any more of his words of revolution. Three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. 
He got up out of the grave. When he arose from the dead, the Bible now calls him the second man, the new man, the leader of a new creation, a Christ who has come to overthrow the existing order and to establish a new order that is not built on man, that is not built on any political system. Keep in mind, my friend, that all militancy and radicalism, that all the systems of men are doomed to destruction. All the systems of men will crumble, and finally only God's kingdom and his righteousness will prevail. You will never be a radical until you become part of that new order and then go into the world that's enslaved, a world that's filled with hunger and poverty and racism and all those things of the work of the devil. Proclaim liberation to the captives. Preach sight to the blind. Set at liberty them that are bruised. Go into the world and tell men who are bound mentally, spiritually, and physically the liberator has come. That's what we're about here. That's what matters most. And our political involvement flows from that. And my goodness, I hope people see something different from us. Right? Let's listen to each other. When you find out that someone votes different than you, can you maybe seek to understand that? Hey, help me understand that. Hey, here's someone I love. Hey, here's someone who shares my ultimate allegiance to Jesus. Where, where did some of those beliefs, where did some of that understanding come from, right? Let's not do the othering thing, right? Whoever that is, ultimate allegiance to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that the liberator, that, that the one alone who can actually free us from sin and death has come. Lord, I pray that our political engagement would flow from that reality. God, keep us from that sort of apathy that can unnecessarily pull us away from a way that we can be a blessing to the world. God, also keep us from that over-engagement um, that can begin to uh, cause confusion in where our allegiance ultimately lies. God, wherever we're at today, we come to this table because we need repentance um, and we need you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.